Welcome back, folks. Good to have you all with us here on The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. This morning, we're going to talk with a man whose work I've liked for a long time and actually want to talk about his books, but we got him for an article. <laughs> He's the author of four novels, most recently Grace, uh, his fifth book coming out from One World Press soon. He teaches English at Yale, uh, Graduate School of Arts in Columbia as well, and wrote this piece in Harper's in this issue called Black Like Who, How Obama Negotiated America's Racial Tightrope. And Calvin Baker, welcome to the Mark Steiner Show. Good to have you with us. It's good to be here, Mark. So this is, it's a complex subject that you really kind of tackled with a lot of finesse, I think, here. It made me think of Obama himself <laughs> and how he had to wind his way through race in America. Not an easy trick. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I take that as a compliment. You know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it, one of the things I got uh, out of this is there is a both a complexity and a simplicity uh, about race and racism in America and, and how, it, in, how it envelops us all in ways that we don't even know it's when we don't even, sometimes don't even know it's occurring. That's right. And race has been central to American identity since its beginning. And one of the things I tried to, one of the things I wanted to do in this article is situate America within the context of English colonialism. And I think we often we often forget the we forget our colonial our colonial roots, and we think of it as simply the break from, you know, we think of a revolutionary war as the break from England, but we don't think about the things that informed it. And America was very much part of English, England's North, North American colonies, and in common with places like Barbados, places like Jamaica, was the source of colonial wealth. The first Africans arrived, as, as you know, in the 17th century, in the very early 17th century, as as indentured servants mm-hmm. uh, by the by, by the by the early 18th century, there were quite a number of free Africans. So many so that the Virginia House of Burgess had to make it illegal for them to to settle in that state because the because they were engaged in the process of building slavery. Right? We think of slavery as something that always existed. It was something that was actually constructed and was constructed without. And I think this is one of the things I try to. I get to in the article is construct it without a lot of forethought. It just happened in, in a very ad hoc manner. However, with slavery and with the construction of slavery, there also grew up a necessary body of, of, of libel, of slanders, because you have to dehumanize people in order to treat them as less than human. And it was, and these are, and these are libels that we know to this day. Frederick Douglass details them uh, very eloquently. And I want to situate Obama in I want to situate Obama in the context of of freedom fighters like Frederick Douglass, like W. B. Du Bois, like Malcolm X, like Martin Luther King. However, also in the in the greater in the greater story of American American self examination. Right at the time of the revolution, when people first began to debate the idea, right, start to think about what should this country be. It became clear to a very small but very significant group of people that slavery was anathema to to the project of America, and this is and so you have these two you know these two opposing forces: those who would organize the colony and American identity, 
identity around slavery and those who had organized around the, the principles, the, the more magnificent principles, I believe we all hold dear. And this, this sort of, this dynamic tension, if you will, has, I think, defined American identity and history since the very beginning. And Obama is, Obama is a, is the personification of, I would argue, the best in both traditions, the, the sort of the greater American tradition or the, the really Hegelian idea of history moving toward justice, as well as an African American idea of fighting for, you know, fighting for equal rights and equality. And so, and he managed to join these two things quite eloquently. You, you, you actually, there's an interesting piece. It was a juxtaposition for me here at the beginning of your article, which really, really touched me. Maybe it makes people think. You, you, at one point, you write in here when you're talking about uh, Winthrop Jordan's book, White Over Black, which is an incredible book and it's just an incredible study. Um, uh, when you said, indeed, m- many considered abolition and independence as one and the same, talk about doing this, the Revolutionary War. And then after you talk about uh, the Somerset v. Stewart case in England, which is a really fascinating case and what it did to to en- enrage and engage uh, American whites in America, you, you write, independence was only a means to save slavery. And the, the, and, the, and the juxtaposition of those two ideas in the midst of this case, in the midst of the founding of this country, I mean, to me, that's the, that's the, that, that was the, like the heart of the beginning of our story, right? You know, I think there are, and, and this is, I've studied American history and Atlantic history for quite a long time, and egoically, there's so little that is new. That's the thing that's always that always amazes me. And we we didn't have some latter day call to consciousness in regards to race relations in America. People there there was a significant segment of people who knew this from the very beginning. And many of them many of them in religious communities, I think uh best best known among them the Quakers, but a, a significant number of people, small but significant, and they held us very, they held us very dearly. And I want to come back to, I want to come back because there are two ideas here. One is the one is being against slavery and abolition. The other is integration, which in many ways was the more difficult challenge and remains the more difficult challenge. On the other hand, you had those whose financial interests were very much in the agricultural economy. Uh, you'll recall. South Carolina, for example, was was founded by or settled by Barbasians or Bayesians who Bayesian planters who'd run out of land, and so that became an outpost of Caribbean slavery, which was the hardcore epicenter of the slave trade. And we, I think, you know, we forget forget that, and the, the majority, vast majority of slaves went to the Caribbean uh, and went to Brazil. Those who settled uh, settled South Carolina come from Barbados and brought with them a much more punitive style of style of slavery, style of agriculture. And these people were aware of the Somerset decision. And, and so like Virginia is the is the wishbone, if you will, between North and South always always has been. And those south of Virginia who 
very much fear that the English were about to abolish slavery. And joining the revolution became a way for them to protect their financial interest. So when you when you look at this piece of our history, when you as you look at this and kind of dissect what happened uh, when Obama became president, I mean the the idea that when you write that race had come to dominate not only the social world but the deep interior of the white self, mm. this, the, right? I mean that's a really important line to explore, both both in the historical context but also in terms of the the complexity of why people loved Obama and why they hated Obama. The same at the beginning when the how the revolution was about abolition and it was about slavery, right? I mean, it's in and and so the same dichotomy kind of transited itself several hundred years ten, uh, into this century with Obama becoming president. There's a process of dehumanization that occurred during during slavery that remained even after after the war. When we talk about, when I say that race had come to define the white interior, I mean by that is people began to construct an identity vis-a-vis that which they were not. I am, I am white. I am not black. Whiteness is this. Blackness is that. And that becomes a real prison for people. And, it's a, and it becomes a hereditary prison. And it becomes hereditary to the extent that you no longer have to teach it, to have to instill it. All right, well, we begin to say, Oh, where do these ideas come from? Well, they come from deep, deep, deep in the be- in the beginning of our history. And how how are they replicated? They're reproduced. They're reproduced socially all the time. And the only thing you have to do to reproduce them is not question them, not interrogate them, not disrupt them. And Obama, you know, Obama disrupted them because he because he sp- because there's the very fact of him. Sort of gave lie to so many of the so many of the, the silent prejudices, the the silent codes that people you know that people that people judge others by, they judge African Americans by, and because he seemed to, I mean, he was wonderfully. Joe Biden said this, and it was you know became it was a controversial statement yes. at the time. Uh, clean, well-spoken, good-looking guy. And African Americans, of course, as I say in the article, you could say the same things about Malcolm X. Biden says mainstream, and so it becomes the credentialing, which again only possible after the Civil Rights Movement. So you have someone who's been the editor of the Harvard Law Review, who and embodies all those things that we would expect a top student from from Harvard to possess: great intelligence, terrific work ethic and real humanity and you can't and so once you once you deny once you to deny him an opportunity after he sort of mastered all these things you can't deny the opportunity anymore right it's sort of like the the old work harder work twice as hard uh belief that african-americans have got to work twice as hard to get the same opportunity well he'd done that i think that it not only I think people felt a sense of, or a great many people felt a sense of relief to vote for Obama because he was someone who it became an affirmation of their own enlightened sensibilities as much as it was an affirmation of him. But here's one, here's someone, and again, I think he's obviously a remarkable man and he's, 
is he is he a, a unique figure in from the African American media? I would I would say that Obama is you know, Obama's special. He's special in any media. However, there are many special African Americans, and he happens to be one. Right, it's right place, right time, right right credentials. Someone has to be first. And he, you know, once he's joined in him, ways that you know, black excellence on the one hand, and also the the codes of what I call liberal excellence. Mm-hmm. When you said that integration is hard to come by, um, and you looked at Obama, and you said in terms of Obama being part of the legacy of Douglas and King and Malcolm, um, and and. In, in, in why it's so hard for us to get to this point. I mean, every time you feel like there's there's an opening in America when it comes to racial equality, there's this huge pushback, which we've experienced now, which we can talk about in a moment. But but the the the, the notion in which you, when you wrote here some of the quotes from Douglas and others um, about why it's so hard to get to this point, why integration, the as you wrote, integration's reality is hard to come by. Why is it why is it so hard for for us to come to, to, to get to this point? Will we ever get to this point? First of all, I think it's it's important to remember that this is a multicultural country from the very beginning, and it is it is I mean, from the beginning of, of European colonization certainly, and as a country from the moment you know it is it is European uh, specifically English, uh, but then subsequent waves of immigration. Uh, first the Germans and then Southern European. It is it is African. It it is Native American, and so you've all these people inhabiting this space, sharing a space on unequal terms from the very beginning. And the ways the ways in which you control that those who the ways in which those of European descent uh, who would have this be a colonial country in which. One group was allowed to exploit other groups for its economic interests, and in order to do this, you, there's a study process of dehumanizing Africans and Native Americans to the extent by the time you know, by the time of the, of the Civil War, you have and even before the Civil War, even those who who debated abolition in in the Revolutionary Era knew that integration would be a challenge because you had those who conceived of themselves whose whose self-idea was one of superiority to other people. And you have what this, those who exist in the material conditions of slavery. And we know, we, we know the ways in which we respond to someone who's well-dressed as opposed to someone who's poorly dressed. And the, the effect those, those things, those cues, of status have on one's have on one's preconceptions of one else. You have the problems of education. You have the problems of housing. Of right. And so all of these things already exist in the revolutionary era, and and with that, but the biggest, I'd say, the biggest challenge became a the the self conception of superiority, right. We are white people. We are superior to other people, and that was joined to a whole body of sort of scientific racism. You have the mental self ideals, 
of superiority. So it's not just racism, it's white supremacy. And, and then you have the, just the social and material challenges of integrating a group of people who've been dispossessed. Think of, you know, think of, think of Germany and think of the, which was only divided for 50 years and, you know, has been reunited for a generation now, and there's still unequal earnings in East and West Germany, by way of example. And that is, you know, in a population where people see themselves as the same, and there's been great resources spent on integrating those two those two sides, and you know, come back to a colonial co- co- uh, colonial space in which people. A great many people conceive of themselves as superior, and there's great resistance to the idea of integrating schools, problems that we still face. There's great, there's great resistance to the idea of residential integration, problems we still see, and go down the line. And this is why integration is a harder challenge than abolition. Abolition, it's, you can legislate that. Real integration requires real effort, real will. And so, and I think we would, it, it's something that society, even liberal society says, you know, we really believe in integration. However, when you look at the cost of real integration, people become, people become more hesitant. And right, it's sort of, oh, I'd like to see schools integrated. However, I'm going to be very, very cautious about where I send my own children to school. And, 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 you know, these decisions can be, are very often counterfactual, right? Like people think that to send your school to, send your children to a school that's majority African-American or majority Latino, that it, it's automatically a bad school or that, and, you know, or that, you know, those, from, you know, the real, just by way of, of example, so, or social economic uh, diversity in a school is good for the whole population. And why is integration hard? Because it requires an effort. And so, like, like things that it's hard enough dealing with the legal the legal remnants of of colonialism, of colonial society, of slavery, and 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 we still see you know there we still see examples of that. I think the death penalty is, is a glaring one. And then you're dealing with the social, the the social constructs of of a segregated society that require that require more than you know, more than a simple legislative act. They require active participation. It requires active sacrifice on the part of the society as a whole, an active will to to achieve this. One of the things you say here, which is really to me, if you if I put these two thoughts together at, towards the end of your piece, that it, it, it can be seen as also relatively ominous and and also very real. When you, when you talk about Trump and what he when he talked about the Mexican rapists and banning Muslims and all the rest that he said, stop and frisk and the horrible things that he said, and then you talk about Frederick Douglass's uh, uh, called the White Book of Libel and the quote you have here. It, you know, that it paints a hateful picture according to its own diseased imagination and distorts the features of the fancied original to suit the portrait. As those who believe in the visibility of ghosts can, can easily see them, so it is always easy to see repulsive qualities in those we despise and hate. And you go on to say, 
which I think is really profound, which is that you say we make great, we've made undeniable progress, but then you write, the ghost of America's colonial past has broken free of any attempts to control it. The ghost now sits in the White House, forcing us to reckon with it. The ghost is ugly and sinister and is naive to this country and native to this country as biscuits and gravy and that we won't get rid of it into our legal system, economic system, and education system, um, or rid of it. Our nervous system is rid of it. I mean, so to go beyond the color line. But so, so I mean, that's, to, to me, what you're talking about here is just how deep it really is. And that it is it, deep. Right? And it, it's deep, but it's also it's there, it's exposed, and it is, it is a challenging problem. It is, but what we've seen in the last 25 years, the last 50 years, wouldn't have been possible in other moments in American history. And so you have you have this figure who uh, this angry white man bearing an angry white man since entitlement speaking to the the rage of of others who feel that they've somehow lost ground and that the and that they've lost ground because of because of African-Americans, because of immigrants, which is, is not true. But, it, you know, these are these people have been whipped into a frenzy, if you will, and some of them don't need to be, right? It's, you've, got a, you've got a president who's embraced, you know, the, what was euphemistically called the alt-right. It's the it's extreme racist right. And it's, it's all right there in front of us. Begging the question, what are we going to do about it? Right. It's no longer hiding in the shadows. It's no longer speaking in codes. It is, it is, it is now in the White House, and you know, and it's, a, it's a moment of reckoning. I don't see no one's retreating from the challenge. It is, you know, they, they won. They won fair and square. And, you know, it does, you know, cause it's like, what does that mean about this country, about the nature of this country? And I think it is what it becomes is it's a referendum. It becomes an opportunity to prove that we are better than that. I believe I, I believe America is better than that. But it's also the undeniable truth. And you can't you can't advance. You can't. There can be no progress without a real reckoning and a real acknowledgement of how vast and deep the problems really are. Calvin Baker, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. This is a, a wonderful article, Black Like Who, How Obama Negotiated America's Racial Tightrope in this issue of Harper's. And we look forward to talking to you again about your next book and all the books you've already written. Calvin, thanks so much for what you bring to us. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you.